Hey, how's it going? Um, my name's Matt Waters. I'm starting this uh, podcast called Strange Currencies. It's going to be about the songwriting process, uh, which I feel is endlessly fascinating. Uh, this first episode, I'm going to read you an essay uh, that I wrote that was recently published in Guernica called A Moment of Honesty. It's about my experiences as a performer, primarily, because uh, performance is certainly an interesting topic to uh, elaborate upon if you are a performer because you, you do have insights that, you know, uh, I think are, are interesting from a human being standpoint, you know, just you know, like you meet someone who gets on a stage and sings into a microphone, you're liable to be curious about that person. Uh, but also uh, from a from an artistic process standpoint, uh, elaborations on identity, and uh, the fluidity uh, of, of identity, uh, which is an interesting topic to me, even outside the artistic realm. But this essay, uh, A Moment of Honesty, uh, came together, uh, basically, I, I saw an opportunity to write it. Uh, I, I figured I was qualified. Uh, Guernica was looking for, for four pieces uh, from musicians. I was like, all right, you know what? Uh, let me try to parlay some of my experiences into you know, a decent piece of work that, that gets published and hopefully read. Because uh, you know, getting published is, is nice. I mean, it was you know, part, part of uh, the, the appeal to Because you, you know, if, if you're a writer, um, you can work on things for years and no one ever reads them or they might be good but they're not going to be done for a couple of years and you know what's going to happen there you have to accept a lot of uncertainty so to know hey i'm going to work hard on this and hopefully someone reads it i don't know who you know uh who knows but like just to know it'll be floating around in the world uh available for someone w was you know an incentive and i think i wanted to take the opportunity to try to maybe assess uh, my own feelings about uh music as man like i don't know if other musicians feel this way but i certainly often <laughs> given like the difficulties of entailed with it for so many different reasons you know I i'll say why am i doing this again like why why am I doing this? Like, I know I like writing and I know I love music, but like, why am I uh, trying to be an active participant in the world of music? Uh, and sometimes, you know, a reminder will, will hit you in the face and sometimes it won't. I mean, I, I have a medical condition uh, that can make uh, certain everyday things a little difficult sometimes. I don't know if I want to like get too much into it with something with my throat. Um, and I had something happen a, a few months ago that was minor, but reminded me of other things that were a little more major. <laughs> oh, see what I did there? Uh, yeah. Wow, I am really nervous right now, as you can see. And I, I told myself before I started, do not just speak from the heart. Don't get too intellectual. And I found, like, I felt myself like wading into the intellectual pool, and I was like, ah, I'm trying, I'm trying to bring it back right now. But yeah, I had you know a little bit of a health thing go on, very very minor thing. But it, like I said, it reminded me of other stuff that's happened, and, and I, I immediately wanted to play a show. So it obviously means a lot to me. And when I'm being totally honest with myself, and I'm unclouded by ambition, jealousy, pettiness, those types of fun things, it's something I just want to do naturally. I want to share the songs I've written. I want to, you know, be a part of that community. I want to have the communal experience of being the person who's sharing uh, these songs, uh, you know, like you can go so far to say you're sharing your gift, you're sharing gifts with a crowd, you know, like trying to get them outside themselves, outside the day-to-day -day grind into this artistic moment of uh, critical thinking about life that's supposed to, you know, on balance over 200, 300 years, if enough people are doing that, the world should move forward a little bit. But um, yeah, man, like, the negatives like you know what will make you ask yourself like why the hell am i doing this you know inertia feeling like you're in the same place you were a couple of years ago getting a show ready you know booking a show is fun but then worrying about what the turnout's gonna be dealing with the booker booker's expectations when they're really not giving you much and the venue's really not giving you much but they're they're they have expectations and that can feel 
you know, very frustrating. Uh, but the reality of it is there's 40 people who would take the slot you just got, so you kind of have to roll with it a little bit. But those things over time, you know, if you're someone in my position, you know, kind of on the outskirts of the mainstream music scene, whoa, I would even... <laughs> I mean the outskirts. I mean that might be putting it nicely. I'm like, I'm I'm in the last outback in the bomb shelter, underneath the you know five uh, pounds of cement or whatever you want to call it, like in the cellar uh, strumming and singing. Uh, but I love it. You know, I, I love doing it. I've heard good things about what I do uh, from people, and, and and it's nice to to hear hear those things. Uh, you know, and I've definitely experienced frustration. I think there's always kind of get into this in the essay a little bit, but at least I feel how you want to sound and how you sound, I think for, for a lot of people, it never matches up no matter like how much you improve. It's almost as if there's a strange uh, division, a strange separation even between your intention and what you think you're capable of producing and what you want to produce versus what comes out. And like what comes out is the product. It's what you're making and it has value. But it's almost something, at least I feel like almost divorced from, from what, I, what I produce sometimes in a strange way, which I, uh, you know, even saying that, it sounds like, oh man, that, that must be like a crappy feeling. And it, and it can be at times, but like a lot of times I don't even worry about it because I'm happy to just be producing material. Like I'm happy to be writing a new song. Um, and I do sense like a narrative coalescing around like all my songs, like they're, you know, kind of telling the same story, but I guess in terms of sound, in terms of how I sound from a vocal standpoint and in terms of like how my instrument sounds, whether I'm live or whether I'm recording, uh, yeah, like, you know, there is like a division, you know, like between maybe how I envisioned or, or, or the ideal or whatever that, you know, you, you're probably never going to get to. And I've never been in a band, but I can imagine that's probably the source of friction a lot of times. You know, what is the best way to get that sound you want? You know, you can, it's a simple thing that you can probably argue endlessly about. And, uh, but those are the things that can be frustrating. So, you know, dealing with the logistics of a show, dealing with your advancement or lack of advancement artistically, your advancement or lack of advancement commercially. Um, you know, those are the things that can really grind you down. Friends help, community helps. Uh, those are good things. And I feel like, you know, working on this essay, again, another reason why I worked on it is positive. You know, I sit back and I, I say like, hey, I took, you know, these experiences and I try to make something positive out of it. I try to make this piece that I hope people relate to and and that on its own level i feel has a lot of merit so and uh the podcast in and of itself yeah something you know again you talk about community i mean it would be a dream for me to interview some songwriters i admire and uh hear about you know their process and uh i feel the blood and you know whatever <laughs> the blood and guts <laughs> that's a little od right there but you know a person's essence a lot of times is in their lyrics, uh, in their songs, in their presentation. Uh, existence, right? Like, uh, to break it down to a philosophical point, I mean, no one wants to feel like they don't exist. No one wants to feel invisible. And that is a way to try to leave an imprint, uh, try to leave an imprint on people, but also on your own mind. Like, I was here. I did these things. Um, I, I have a voice, you know, th those are reasons, um, that leads you to a moment of honesty. And that is, uh, what my essay is called. And I'd like to, b without further ado, uh, read it to you. And I guess this is kind of like interview number one, interview with myself. <laughs> no, I do. I, I, I just thought it would be a, a, a nice, a nice way to, to kick things off. So. Uh, let me have another sip of water here. There will be digressions. Sure. I consider myself a decent person, even though I've daydreamed about ranting from stages like a theatrical fascist. In these fantasies, the faceless audience is compliant. They need me to exist. Are there many more like me? 
disconnected in college, sleeping in their driver's side seat between classes and believing transcendence to be the truest aim, only to wake up one day realizing those things that used to be grime have become armor. All the inconvenient details left out of overflowing coffee shop conversation, now pertinent information. Knife through the dirt and dig. Find the buried self because being nobody means saying nothing. An intentional interior disassociation couldn't feel more futile in these times. There is nowhere to escape your face, and that seems to be the way we want it. Damn. Little moments were telling me to try something different. I'd find myself drifting off on security guard duty one summer, thinking about what I'd put on the, on the cover of my album while I was supposed to be making sure nobody kidnapped the kids and titles, a lot of album titles. I hadn't played one chord at that point. I like my jeans skinny and my face hairy. I've had this paranoia like I'm being threatened for an explanation. I was confused during the first breach of the scene. Am I supposed to feel pride over nearly a decade of self-destructive behavior? Because that's what's real about me. Sorry to clear my throat. <laughs> I, I wanted to write about existential theory, swamps as metaphor for intergalactic isolation, and sunbeams through windshields as acceptance. I find the intersection between my artistic life and practical life ironic. Like I'm part of the generation caught between the new questions and the old questions during the job interview, no matter the field. Yes, applicant, we sense an identity. Now elaborate with hard data. Why are you, you? My first ever set was on the Upper East Side. A flirty spam bot had booked a gig for me. These flirty spam bots all wrote their messages the exact same way, but had names like the most fun girls at a Montauk beach house party, Kelly or Nikki, skipping over the pale sand while composing their pleasantly impersonal <laughs> pleasantly impersonal missives, and one, one of them just popped right in my head like while I was reading that, which is why I laughed. I'm not going to like do an impression of how I, how I envision this voice sounding, because it'll, it'll be really ridiculous, but um, these emails were so weird because it was like they could have been talking to anybody but they were like really polite and friendly so you know i guess that's like not a very uncommon thing but it was just a odd an odd way to start my quote-unquote career in music a drunken record producer sidled up to me at the bar he insinuated i had a sweet little hustle going keeping all the money to myself i nodded my head even though i was baffled by what he said his band was playing first and he seemed intrigued by my impending performance it was going to be my first time playing more than two songs consecutively and having my name announced by the sound man from his booth the big leagues and this industry dude thought i was a steely guitar shark the room was crowded for a charity event there had to be like 40 50 or 800 people there looking at me a girl in the crowd started doing the robot during my rhythmically repetitive centerpiece song. I couldn't tell whether this was a genuine robot dance or a mocking robot dance. I guess nothing ever mattered less. Afterward, I felt, I, I felt like I'd fulfilled my obligations in a blackmail plot. Continuing my live experimentations may not have made rational sense, but I never heard my guitar filter through a sound system. I played a fourth capo G to start and couldn't believe my ears. It sounded like I was part of the Alpha Omega Orchestra. That's me, and there's the score, my cut. So I want to take a break right now from, from the essay and uh, just talk a little bit about you know my beginnings uh as uh, as you <laughs> as you hear me leaning back in my chair that was so ridiculous talk about my beginnings uh i came from mu to music from language i listened to tupac obsessively in high school i do not remember how i initially got into tupac but you know it was probably by osmosis a little bit uh, I don't know if that's the right right terminology, but my brother absolutely loved hip-hop. He's five years older than me, and I remember we'd be in our old house across the street from uh, 184 Park in our uh, attached house, and we shared a room together, which really got awkward when he uh, became a teenager, <laughs> and I was still like seven or, or eight or nine. Uh, it was like child man kind of, kind of thing going on, kind of arrangement going on. But yeah, I, I remember you know one of those those memories of childhood that are so, um, I guess persistent would be the right word in your mind. How they revisit you, you can just see them without even thinking about it. It's like a millisecond, and you can just remember the entire scene. 
the way the floor looked in our room, our little TV on our clothes closet, our little tiny square TV where I used to watch Yankee playoff games and try to stay awake and I'd kind of fall asleep and nod off and I'd wake up the next morning and hoping you know, one of my parents would tell me they won. And if they didn't say anything right away, I would know they lost, which I remember from uh, 1997 when they lost to the Indians uh, that year. I was very sad about that. But my brother, you know, he, he would do his workout regimen. He'd be, you know, doing these push-ups and, you know, big, strong guy. And I was, I'm still a small, skinny kid. And I was very small and very skinny when I was eight or nine years old. And I'd, I'd just be watching him, you know, ripping these, like, sets of, like, 50 push-ups in a row while, you know, the hip-hop was just banging. We had a... Uh, you remember those six CD changers, those gigantic six CD changers? Uh, great sound. Uh, you know, the six CDs, it'd be like Eminem, DMX, Tupac, Jay-Z, Nas, Biggie. I mean, those would be like the six CDs in there. Uh, I still remember, uh, I, I loved uh, the cover. Man, I don't remember the title of the album, and I, sh I should. Uh, but the DMX cover when he's covered in, uh, you know, covered in blood from head to toe, that made quite an impression on me when I was like uh, nine or ten years old. I was like, whoa, this is pretty intense, you know. And I like the music. I, I really, really like the music. I, I loved Eminem when everybody loved Eminem when Eminem was was first uh, really broke out as a star in a very different America than than uh, what we know today. A different America for for the better in in, in so many ways, but. Uh, back then, you know, the the things he did not get called on and the things that people did not get outraged about, uh, you know, just interesting how, how, how things change over time. Uh, but, you know, I, I loved yeah, the, the, the real Slim Shady. I, I mean, uh, Marshall Mathers, uh, LP, I, you know, listen to that stuff all the time. I, I remember my when it, when I would have control over the six CD changer, I think it would be like Eminem. I love Fastball, uh, I, I, the way I was. Really, that was actually the first album I ever bought. Uh, all the pain money could buy, and that really, yeah, that was another. They, they had the they had pills on the on the back of the jewel case. Uh, you know the, these images. I remember his big white pills uh, against the white background. I was like, oh, what's I, I, what's going on there? Uh, all the pain money could buy and pills. I I kind of put a little bit, but you know. I didn't really have any clue about it. It's just so interesting how these like very adult concepts, you know, into the mainstream can like reach like a, you know, eleven year old kid who like has no idea, but like kind of gets it a little bit. Like, yeah, man, like, you know, pain, like pills, pain, all the pain money could buy. You know, yeah, you put it together a, a, a little bit in your mind. But that that was the first album I bought. But I was so, I mean. I, I had a bit of a one-track mind growing up. I would say, you know, say between, you know, 9 and 13, really formative years where your interests, you know, you become aware of your interests, what's particular to you, uh, what, what you constantly revisit. I mean, you probably do before that, but, you know, you're growing at that point. You're working toward being a teenager, you're working toward puberty, and uh, the hellish experience that will be. <laughs> so in, in a lot of ways, but... I, I was like one track, man. Like I, I listened to the music when my brother would put it on, and I, I sometimes, you know, I'd have my WWF soundtrack uh, CD and, and listen to that. But I, I couldn't say like I was a, a burgeoning music obsessive uh, by any means. I, I love baseball. I mean, I was absolutely obsessed with baseball and and others, you know, in football. Uh, those were like my two sports. I played a ton of sports every day in the park, played football in the park every day, two-hand touch, arguing about what was a fumble and what wasn't, or whether one hand touched you or two hands touched you. And and the games where you like would play for like two hours and lose track of the score and just play for fun. Uh just really, really cool stuff. Um and that that was that was my thing. Sport sports were my thing. Uh probably not coincidentally, I, I got like a little bit more into music when you know, all the other boys grew, and I kind of stayed the same height, the same weight. And I was a fast little kid, and I kind of, like, lost all my speed. I think it was because I was eating McChicken sandwiches, like, three times a week. I went from being, like, very fast to being very slow. So uh, my athletic ambitions were, were kind of cut short. And by the time I got to, uh, to high school, 
I really I think like sophomore year, I just got totally obsessed with Tupac. Started listening to Tupac, I'd say like ninety to ninety five percent of the music I was listening to. I also uh I, I listened to some Jay Z, I listened to some Biggie. You know, the songs everybody knows, you know, from those two guys and, and Nas. Um <clears throat> Oh my goodness. I'm sorry. <coughs> Man. Mm. I'm still here. I just I got a really bad cold right now. Had to have a sip of water. But yeah, I just started listening to Tupac, and Tupac opened the musical doors for me. Um, and like I said, I came at it really from a, a language standpoint, not a musical standpoint. And people kind of arrive to music from so many different angles. You get obsessed with the guitar, get obsessed with drumming, get obsessed with a band. For me, it was language and lyricism. And Tupac was the perfect person for, for me to, to be listening to. He he told stories. Um, and as I listen to him now, uh, you know, after this got, you know, published and I finished, you know, working on it, I I, uh, I was struck by this need to listen to Tupac. So I stuck a CD in my car and uh, it was kind of just like the old day. I mean, it reminded me of being in high school. I was driving around my neighborhood with the windows down and some Tupac playing. And uh, I was so struck by his voice. I mean, man, like that's what really hit me. Like in the aftermath of, you know, all that's gone on in my life uh, from, you know, just speaking, <laughs> let alone a personal standpoint, for, from like an artistic standpoint, his voice knocked me out uh, when I recently listened to him. I mean, his voice, he, he used his voice like an instrument. His voice was an instrument. Uh, and I, I don't think you can say that about... Uh, and the way that he could reach into you person to person, really dig under your under your skin and uh finesse his way through, you know, into your heart really, into your soul with, with what he was saying and what he was singing and how he was communicating those things. Uh managing to do that where someone like me at fifteen could just feel like, oh, this guy is so cool. And then someone like me at, you know, 28 could say, wow, like, I love what it, how he's phrasing that. I love, like, the way he, f like, phrased that, the way he set that up uh, with his voice. Like, his voice is just, you know, really incredible. Um, so from Tupac, you know, I was, like, with me, like I said, one track mind, I, I, I was like, hey, I got Tupac. I'm good for the rest of my life, you know. Like that was basically my attitude going into college and my freshman year of college I basically was just you know listening to a ton of Tupac constantly and I had some I, I really liked uh Float On by Modest Mouse and weirdly enough I, I listened to that song pretty obsessively for like four years came out when I was in high school 2004 uh, I listened to it obsessively for like three four years without checking out any of their other work which is an odd thing to do but that's just how I rolled so I had that on my iPod. I had some other stuff on my iPod. And what happened was, uh, I guess it was the spring semester of my freshman year in college. I'm Not There uh, was coming out, <clears throat> the uh, Todd Haynes movie, where you had six different actors playing Bob Dylan. And uh, the trailer was really rolling a lot, which I'm very thankful for. Because, <laughs> uh, you know, I, I think that movie had a very good budget, but not it wasn't like a massive release. And I, the trailer was just on all the time. And I remember seeing it in my dorm room all the time. And there was a moment in the trailer, Heath Ledger, uh, the great Heath Ledger, uh, you know, driving in a convertible with Charlotte Gainsbourg next to him. And he's driving, and, and the snare hits. You know, and then the organ comes up. You know, and then his voice comes up. And, you know, they're all Todd Haynes film. And they're giving you all the, you know, the actors like you've never heard of but they must be important <laughs> if they're in this movie you know and like i was like 18 or whatever i was like oh this, this. and like man uh that is like how i got into bob dylan like i i just i i uh, you know it became like one of those trailers like you like seeing it's like oh man like i hope that trailer comes up again i'm sure i watched it constantly on youtube because uh, youtube was out at that point and, you know, and from there you know i started listening to like a little bit of dylan of course i, I checked out like a rolling stone 
and I would like listen to them on, on YouTube and, you know, ran, random YouTube playlists. And I'd be like, oh, that was cool. And, uh, you know, from what you could gather from like what I've said about Tupac, as you can imagine, from a language standpoint, coming from to music from a from a language standpoint, I mean, you could only imagine like once I got into Dylan, like what, you know, what a natural match that would be for me. Um, and what happened was. I was kind of like a, I was always a one song guy. Like I said with Modest Mouse, I'd be like, I get that song, that song, that song from that album. I didn't listen to albums as as works of art, as uh, works of art in their own right. I would just take songs and burn CDs. I love burning CDs. I was like one of, <laughs> it's like maybe the most fun I had from uh, age 13 to whatever, you know, like just bur burning CDs in my house and enjoying enjoying doing that and listening to them in my car. And like how the sequence would play out, but I, I did not listen to, to albums for whatever strange reason. I, there, there was like whatever, whether whether it was a part of me like kind of holding myself back from fully diving into music, whether I wasn't ready to do it, whatever it might be. But as I mentioned, I was listening to Dylan on, on these playlists on YouTube, and and finally, you know, I clicked on Blonde on Blonde playlist. And uh, as I mentioned, I've been you know just basically taking individual songs and putting them on my iPod. And I had that moment of religion, a moment of epiphany when I, I discovered, like, whoa, this song I love, that song I love, that's, I, I remember, I, I want you, love that song, loved I want you, you know, like, but like all these songs on the same album, on Blonde on Blonde. And that's when I got really, like, thrown for a loop. And I'll never forget that moment, really. It was almost, uh, out of body experience like just having that mo it was i guess maybe falling in love i mean it would be like similar to that like the world undulates and uh you know if you have this moment of like heightened reality as if the universe is pointing at you and pointing at like what you're looking at and saying like this is really important for you this is for you all right this 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 is what you need and that's that's what i felt that night in my dorm room listening to blonde on blonde on a youtube playlist and that was it, man. I mean, then I started listening to albums. I was like, oh, I get what an album is. You know, I, I love movies and I understood, you know, it's a work it's a work of art, like a film, like a book, like anything, you know, it's it, it's a statement. And I had never understood that before then, you know, like um, it's, it's funny, like uh, my high school was very musical. My, my class was very musical. I mean, a ton of musicians came out of my high school class. Uh, and it's too bad, like, that I didn't realize in high school, like, what I felt for music, because I'm sure we could have had some cool conversations and hung out, drank our beers and talked about more interesting things than, you know, than whatever. <laughs> but, uh, you know, Cesla V, you know, but like my, my high school class produced like a touring musician. He's a touring like rock musician right now. I produced a, a rapper who's like played the Knitting Factory and like Webster Hall. And so really really cool stuff among others you know like so and i can't i just came into it late but the the fun thing about coming to things late you know when you are later than maybe you could have i think that's a better way of putting it like you know when you miss a show you miss like a whole show that like you would have loved while it was on but then like you know hey you got like six seasons of mad men to watch and you know that episode three or episode two or episode one that moment where you're like i love this fucking show you know, <laughs> oh, my God, I have all this stuff to plumb. You know, I got all this material to watch, to catch up on. And then you dive in head first, and it's on, baby. And that's basically my experience, you know, at that point. Like, I was a fan first. I was a music fan first. Forget I, Playing? I've never even entered my mind. Forget it. I mean, I, I didn't think about playing for, for a long time. I was just a fan. I was, you know, bought every Bob Dylan album I could get. You know, I decided Street Legal was a work of genius. You know, I, I love Street Legal. <laughs> and, you know, I, I developed my preferences, and I still really, really like Street Legal. I thought it was, like, you know, on par with Blonde on Blonde. I kind of like being a contrarian at times, and I think it can be, like, to my detriment at times when I'm making an argument because I just enjoy being a contrarian. And, like, when I was first getting into Dylan, I was like, man, Street Legal is great. And when I saw the bad reviews for it, I was like, no way, man. This is mine. Like, I love this album. But... To, to, to digress from my digression, I mean, Street Legal, I feel, is one of the last times Dylan talked about the city in his work, the modern city, the contemporary city that he was living in 
uh, and I feel like he was great at that, and that's all over Blonde on Blonde and Highway 61 revisited to an extent. Um, but I think that's like one of the last times he did that, and uh, I think that's like what's really special about that album. It's all very much in code, symbolism, tarot, you know, a little bit of tarot, but th percolating through all those songs is pressure, and a lot of the songs just direct, you know, the pressure of the individual getting crushed down by society. Uh, and the the interesting thing about that album that Dylan did, uh, whether intentionally or unintentionally, the album's really a mix of those songs about oppression and culture and society and civilization um, and love songs. And the last song, Where Are You Tonight, quite beautifully combines the two themes as we have an individual feeling very oppressed by culture, feeling crushed under, and he's also in love with a girl and wondering where she is tonight. And it's really like a combination of the two themes, which is pretty like you know awesome stuff so yeah as you can tell i still really like street legal i i do get you know yeah you know i'm a little you know you're, you're you you get different recognitions of things as you get older and you know <clears throat> chauvinism is certainly one of those things and it's certainly on that album but good stuff's on there too in my opinion and i'm a guy so you know uh, I've, I've come to understand that. Like, you kind of have to make peace in a way of, like, at least I feel, where it's like, when it comes to those issues, man, of course, I don't think you can fight your honest human reaction to something. Whereas, yes, like, I can honestly say, you know, the chauvinism in Bob Dylan's work probably doesn't bother me, or I know it doesn't bother me as much as it would bother a woman, and I know that impacts, like, how I see him artistically. And I know that, like, impacts how I respond to him. So, like, I, I've gotten to a point where, like, you know, you can, like, ask yourself, should I be, like, rating this lower because of these things? And should I, like, kind of be more objective? Or should, you know, I just say, like, yeah, like, who I am impacts what I hear and, like, what I focus on as a listener. So, like, I can objectively say, like, some of that stuff you know, is definitely, like, chauvinistic, and, like, you know, if it's chauvinistic, it's it's narrow-minded, and it's not expansive, and it's not, like, artistic, and it's, like, not as good, obviously, but, like, it, I still enjoy the fuck out of the album, you know, so, like, those things can be, like, complicated, I'm, like, really digressing right now, but anyway, to bring it all back home, <laughs> I, I got into the guitar, um, I, I was fortunate enough, I, I knew someone, uh, who, who I was friends with who really encouraged me to do it and if she hadn't encouraged me to do it I probably would have never done it if I had thought about it I never would have done it I guess I would have let it slide you know that kind of thing <laughs> um, you know and she really encouraged me uh, I thought the ship had kind of sailed I, I felt like you know I think there was like a touch of me you know being like where I'm from and who I hung out with for a very long time what I knew you know, there there was definitely, like, an element there where I felt, like, a little alienated uh, from, like, even being a musician. Like, from what, how I viewed musicians, like, how I would look at a musician, how I would look at a kid on YouTube, like, with wearing a beanie and, like, having a guitar in his hands and, like, feeling like I could never be that person, you know, and, like, I'm not, like, cool. I'm not. So, like, I had all these, like, really negative kind of associations with, with trying to be a guitarist. Um, which is kind of crazy because I, I, I like thoroughly love music at this point, but I was just like, I can't, you know, it's just not me. Like, but this, this person, you know, she, she, <laughs> she really, uh, pointed me in a different direction, uh, and encouraged me. And, you know, I took the first lesson and I see the same guitar teacher, uh, six years later, which is pretty cool. Same, go to the same place, see the same teacher. Um, and that, and that's how it started, uh, really. And that's how. I mean, as you can imagine, as someone who, like, loves language and got into music, as I'm, I feel like I'm uh, repeating, like I'm a professor, <laughs> like, repeating himself or whatever, going, revisiting themes or whatever, uh, <clears throat> you know, you can imagine, like, I, I wanted to write lyrics, you know, like, always wanted to write lyrics, same way I always really loved music without really knowing it fully until I, I, I started listening to, to Dylan after listening to Tupac, but... You know, without music, lyrics are dead on a page. Um, and learning how to play guitar, like, 
changed my life. Uh, <laughs> and I'm, I'm, I'm incredibly thankful for that. And that's kind of like how I came to do it. So I, I just wanted uh, to, to do that, you know, like have a little digression from the essay and talk, talk about like my own journey a little bit. So, yeah, I, I think I got like sucked into that. I think I had like, you know, you know what just happened to me right there? So many memories hit me at once. Like I, I had to like stop talking and I, I even like lost total track of maybe like where I was going to end up because uh, like so many things came to mind. Like, wow, pretty amazing. Uh, so anyway, continuing. I played the same place again a couple months later and felt I had made a substantial improvement. I wasn't singing just to save the hostages that time. It was for me. I waved at the crowd after I finished because they seemed happy to have heard me. I was still on the stage and probably could have floated toward the bar. Fear and gravity were dead for a second. Four years later, I was on a plane and tried listening to myself with objectivity. <laughs> it's just so funny. Like, uh, I guess this was worthwhile for me to do. Uh, and I guess it's worthwhile for musicians to try to be like objective, but it's very, very hard. And uh, I feel like you probably end up being like way more critical on yourself than like is even helpful. Uh, and you said you're like, I'm gonna be objective, mur, mur, mur. <laughs> whatever. It's easy pretending to be someone else on a plane, especially if the only person you're trying to convince is yourself. And if I were someone else and stumbled upon one of my recent recorded sets, how would I rate the material? Well, objective me wanted to change everything. I played without subtlety. I made compensations that were unnecessary. I could trust myself more. Why am I still trying to force the issue? There was a moment where I described one of my songs before performing, but more accurately, the writing process. It was a personal antidote about how many, how many, how many of my melodic ideas seemed to arise while walking my dog through our familiar neighborhood milieu. There are memories on every corner. Sometimes you notice the unchanging most of all, like the tint of the sidewalk cement in summer or the snow shade of gray under streetlights on a winter night. During the set and before the song, I'm trying to describe a small barber shop adjacent to a local park, how those barbers and customers speak a language I'd never unlock and lived lives I could not understand. There's so much more than glass between us. What is it like to see people on a daily basis that you'll probably never actually interact with? Maybe I was thinking I'd never get my hair cut by those hands when the melody and lyrics arose. Either way, I tried and, fa <clears throat> I tried and failed to convey these thoughts to the audience with any efficiency. And that was okay. That was not what bothered me. What bothered me was the tone of my voice. And it's actually <laughs> the tone of my voice bothered me right now because I feel like the tone of my voice like just changed because I like swallowed a wad of phlegm. I feel like like how I was talking like totally. I was like, what's what what the f people are gonna be like, what the hell is he doing? But whatever. I imagine the person who belonged to that voice, his top hat and silver cane, his tap dance shoes and pin and a pinstripe suit, the monorail blueprints secured under his armpit. Man, why did I sound like such a salesman up there? Why did I sound like such a salesman when I was trying to speak from the heart? It is possible to be natural on a stage. All you have to do is practice. Then you can get really good at having them think you aren't someone else while they see you. The first time I performed unaccompanied was at an open mic in the village. I waited for three hours to get on the stage. One guy sang a song that included the timely lament, Occupy My Cock. There was the folky couple pointedly speaking over the host, even though he was announcing their show for later in the week. I handed my phone to a tourist while I approached the stage because I wanted evidence of such a significant moment. He happily obliged. Guess I fit in even though I was convinced that I did not. Unfortunately, I couldn't lower the mic for the crowd to hear my guitar. A couple of guys had to come up and help me out. These were the inconveniences. Feeling mortified in front of a group of strangers or mispronouncing Rambo <laughs> in verse a couple of weeks earlier. I always say Rimbo. Basketball Rimbo. I always say that because I, I, I started saying it that way when I was like 18. <laughs> Nothing like invoking the ghost of a poet I had barely read, though I have now. That's really mind-blowing stuff. I cut my song that night short. 
it was because I felt this magnetism. The pull was coming from the audience. It felt like looking down an elevator shaft while balancing solely on your toes. I was powerful and graceful. Remember being a child and whispering in the ear of a friend? Maybe they had not been paying enough attention, and you needed that moment where you were sure they were listening. The secret usually did not matter. It was the possibility of a secret that made them listen. Testing illusion. Experimenting with magic. I had their attention that night. All my new friends convinced I had something important to tell them. Who the hell was this guy croaking out lyrics like an inebriated bullfrog and putting together rhyme schemes like a rapper on acid while playing guitar like he has bricks for both hands? These things were not intentional. They were just the results. And as I mentioned earlier, the results are the results. The immediate thought I remember having was, oh my God, all I need to do is just keep doing what I've been doing and I'm everything I wanted to be. It is right here and now. And that was the problem. I was not expecting the comfort. Maybe a part of me possessed awareness of the, circ of, of the consequences. Oops, consequences. <laughs> those are two. Mm, yeah, those things are different, but hmm, I, guess some, I guess the other word would have worked. too. Huh. What, what does it mean to find calmness in these strange circumstances? Ah, oh, that's what happened. I got the two sentences confused. <laughs> when you can remember being a child struggling to control his bodily movements in the classroom while the other kids seem so easy about their stillness. Am I smiling? Why did I just smile? I need to keep smiling now. Look down. Cover your face. I'm just going to explode, so let me out. I always figured it was my fault, a defect, these thoughts and the clarity of the wild energy. I heard acceptance for myself in music, and I was feeling acceptance from the crowd. It was going perfectly. That was the truth. The first time's not supposed to be perfect. I didn't stop because I was scared to make a mistake. I stopped because there was not going to be a mistake. It was probably one of the most, it was probably one of the best moments of my life, and I could not deal with it. The purity of a journey's beginning. I never felt that again, the magnetic pull. I've never had them like I did that night, the company beyond my closed eyelids. There was the time I jumped outside my body and caught a wider scope of the audience along with myself singing. It was not disturbing. It was like stealing a glimpse from a perspective nobody is allowed to own. I conferred with my guitar teacher and, and he had experienced similar frequencies, out of body, fleeting. Can happen deep in the groove or deep in the groove or like an accident, the almighty celestial thumb randomly flipping the dial on your radio tuning. I felt certain performances delivered with enough precision that my identity completely dissolved and I became the song. What does it mean to be a song? It is the complete acceptance of impermanence. A song would not begin if it could not end. In that sense, they are a celebration of reality. To love a song is to love inev inevitability. As I'm like fucking up. <laughs> Hold on a second. Sorry. It's my throat. When the song ends, I return to myself like shaking off a dream. Is there a job to do? Expressing the universal. I try communicating to certain people that I love them. But how can they know I'm singing especially for them? It'd probably be better to keep that to conversation, but moments of honesty are not easy to conjure. There is something said by someone. One thing nobody can say is that the truth is not what it used to be. It is and we know. The songs always prove it. And don't they always? Like Sometimes when I'm listening to an album, um, it really does feel like a document of the times. Uh, with, with such purity, uh, the the fact that it's creative and artistic and even fictional, though maybe based in contemporary times with fictional characters or themes or in instances, it almost feels more real uh, than you know the nonfiction or the journalism that you might come across. And those things are obviously incredibly valuable and necessary. But I think it's the way there's something about art and the and the person who's uh, you know, the, the listener, the viewer, the reader, what have you, where it becomes so personal. And a, a, a news story, you can almost have that reaction like the world is an abstraction. And isn't it funny that I'm a part of it? Or isn't it scary that I'm a part of it? But with a piece of art, it's so personalized and it's so within you that you almost can't have that denial, uh, that push off from it. 
you're pushing into it in a lot of ways. Um, so, you know, I love music. Um, I really do. And I hope, uh, I hope you enjoyed uh, a, moment, a moment of honesty, uh, my essay, even though I, <laughs> I, I maybe didn't deliver it as well as I would have wanted to, but, you know, it's okay. Um, and, you know, I'm really looking forward to getting this thing rocking and rolling. I, I know a lot of really cool, intelligent, interesting people who write songs uh, artists, you know, who I maybe don't have friendships with, but who knows, maybe I might be able to interview them when this thing really gets on, gets rolling. I mean, I'm committed, baby. I bought my microphone, so <laughs> I'm committed. You know, I'm taking this seriously. I went to Radio Shack and got a mic, so. But I think that's about it. I mean, I think I'm also going to talk about the Yankees um, <laughs> at, at the end of every episode uh, very, very shortly because I love them. Uh, and everything. So I think this team's going to be okay, uh, but they're in a very tough spot because I think they had awful luck at the beginning of the year with runners in scoring position, which can be a flaky stat. I think their pitchers have been a combination of unlucky and a little mediocre, but I think as the season wears on, you're going to see guys pitch more toward their peripheral performance as pitchers, and I think the offense will pick up. The tricky situation that they're in is that they got off to an extremely slow start, and then he had injuries on top of that. So what you want to do is you just want to get to 25 and 25 or 30 and 30 or even like 40 and 39. Uh, get near or at 500 when there's a lot of season left and then you got to get hot. I don't really have <clears throat> any illusions about this team winning 95 games or winning the division or anything like that. But I'm hoping it's going to be a good summer uh, of baseball in the Bronx um, as we've come to expect. And uh Got to keep in mind, last year's team, it was not an accident that they were a good team. They had a very good run differential. This team has a very good bullpen. Um, some things went really right last year that might not repeat themselves, but also uh, some things went really wrong last season that might not repeat themselves. So we'll see where it all works out. And those are my thoughts about the Yankees uh, for, for this episode of Strange Currencies. You know, by, by the next episode, I might, I might be saying, man, they suck. It's time to sell. And get some young talent back. But we'll see. I'm still optimistic. You know, like I said, 25 and 25, that's like uh, from where they are right now, that's like a decent little run. You know, that'd be like 11 and 5 or something like that. And at some point, you got to play well, make a run. So hopefully they can do that. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Strange Currencies. Uh, look for an interview in my next show. And uh, have a great night wherever you are. Have a great night. Have a great day. Have a great week. Listen to some music. You know, be intimate. Have a good time with your life, man. You know, we, we only have uh, one life, so enjoy it. Try it if you can, you know, really try try to really get a lot out of it. All right, take it easy. Uh -huh.